Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, big interview listeners. Have you have you got the summer vibe? Have you got the khaki shorts and the knotted handkerchief on? I do hope so. All right. So you're about to listen to a La Liga event, which I recorded live with Sid Lowe at the Sugar Club in Dublin earlier this year. Together, you'll hear that we share our appreciation of the training ground rondos and the role that they play in the technical development of Spanish footballers, something which teams in England, we reckon, continue to be too ignorant of. We also chat about Luis Enrique, and in particular, his thorny relationship with the Spanish media during his time as manager of FC Barcelona. Plus, I give my opinion on the direction in which Barca are going, football-wise. Sid and I also discuss another character who has since left the Spanish game, Monchi, and explain why he was so remarkably important to the success of his club, Sevilla, during his long reign, 17 years, as sporting director there. Talking football in Dublin was, as ever, huge fun. And I think both of us want to say a big thank you to Con Artist Promotions for staging this gig. Con Artist puts on some fantastic live football talks across Ireland and the UK with past events like the Blizzard, Football Weekly Live and many more. In fact, there's an event at Union Chapel in London on Monday, June 19th, in which... I think you'll probably be very interested. A 25th anniversary celebration of Gazzetta Football Italia, where James Richardson, the great man, James Horncastle and Paolo Bandini will relive their favourite moments from this golden era of Italian soccer. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone. Thanks very much for coming along. Uh, two men here who need no introduction. Uh, Sid, Dr. Sid Lowe. And Graham, sunglasses at night, uh, Hunter. Uh, so that set the fucking tone for the night, <laughs> isn't it? And we're Two of the, the biggest names in Spanish football journalism, uh, and I'm sure we're all interested here. So we're going to have basically two 45-minute halves. We're going to have questions from the audience. Uh, if you want to put in a question, do it on Twitter, hashtag LigaDub, L-I-G-A-D-U-B. And uh, we'll have some questions in the first half, and certainly at the beginning of the second half. Uh, and whatever, so... I guess, first of all, um, first half will kind of be more big picture. In the second half, we'll talk about some of the uh, stars, some of the personalities that's in Graham. 
have uh, have been dealing with during their many years in Spain. So, I guess to you know, the last time I think this is your first time here, Graham Sugarclub. Sensational venue. Thanks for coming out. It's a beautiful place. Yeah. Sid was here uh, three years and three and a half years ago. Yeah, it's like that, yeah. December 2013, uh, and I look back at my notes it's from that. It's seared into your memory, Ken. Mm, it is. Well, it's <laughs> That's how much my, fun you had. It's seared into the memory of my Gmail. Uh, so, I looked at I looked at the notes and. Uh, <laughs> And it turned out we were talking a, a lot about various problems that Spanish football had at that time. You know, there was you know, financial problems, there was inequality, there was all kinds of things. Since then, anyway, they've won six out of six European trophies. So something is still working. And maybe one of the ways to talk about why Spanish football, despite being poorer than English football or German football, is just better, would be to talk a little bit about Rondos. Uh, if I can, maybe I should... It's a start. <laughs> I, I, think, I think what Ken knows is both Sid and I are a little bit obsessed by the rondos. And I suspect that everybody's in here tonight probably knows what they are. And effectively, it's what sometimes get called um, doggies or, or boxes in pig English in and Irish football, pig in the middle, whatever it is. So what we'll watch regularly is a big circle of footballers at um, Spanish clubs. Sometimes it can be six, seven, eight. Sometimes it'll be 12, 15... Sometimes it could be as many as 20. <clears throat> There'll be one or two players in the middle. The objective is to pass the ball around the, the circle and keep the one or the two in the middle and to improve your agility, your mental speed, your touch. But I suspect, knowing Ken, the reason that he's raised it is that as we've been educated about the rondos and their importance, the, the, the thermometer is a... a a guide to the health of any squad, whether it's the international team or, say, Barcelona, for example. I, I've begun to watch um, rondos when you're allowed to at English football club training. And predominantly, what you'll see is like that, predominantly, not always, people have got a misunderstanding in, in Britain about what it's for. Players, professional players, Premier League footballers, that it's there as a kind of party trick, a, a joke to humiliate your mates, make sure that the ball is pinked in the way that they've got to go into the centre. It's like being some sort of, you know, Boy Scout prank or sort of public school prank. Like, let's, you know, there's Mark, he's in the circle. Let's get fucking Mark in the middle. Let's pick him a ball he can't control. And everybody's laughing and it's a big joke and they're completely missing the point. And as a microcosm for the bad health of the Premier League and the inability to pass the ball correctly, it's absolutely startling. And during, um, we had a little um, chat beforehand, one of the things that I found interesting about um, talking to both Spanish but also Dutch footballers and some of the brighter English footballers is this concept that they come um, to England and they look at this complete misapprehension about what the Rondo's for and that it remains either a sort of gentle way to tease each other rather than a way to be ready for training, to learn how to pass the ball, to think quickly and... I'll pass to Sid now because I know he's been a witness to seeing the absolute extreme opposite of what that training device is used for, <clears throat> excuse me, and how important it is. And all I'd leave the subject, Ken, with is that until clubs and the National Association in England and Ireland understand that this is a way in which you, you make your, your technical reflexes razor sharp, and it is not just for the fun or to humiliate your... It's not a lark. Then anybody who doesn't understand that is a little bit lost in terms of where the game I is going like internationally. I feel like I have to actually stand up for English football here, Graham, already. 
Uh, allow me to read you a little bit from um, a very good book. You see, he was preparing. <laughs> uh, before before uh, the show, I thought, Ken's preparing. And then I noticed he's just reading a book. He's, he's not preparing at all, but maybe... Uh, no, this is, this is uh, Marty Perrineau, Pep Guardiola, The Evolution. Um, part two of the Pep uh, biography. Uh, and he talks about... This is actually Dominic Torrent, his, his coach uh, at Bayern. Uh, Ron Ronald Reg, you know, the journalist Ronald Reg has, has already kind of explained. It was uh, the Bayern players adapted to Pep with such humility, it was literally incredible. Nobody expected they would be able to do that. These are Bayern players. Um, but, it, but Dominic Trent says, the players were used to treating Rondos as a bit of fun, but Pep told them from the start how crucially important they would become. In fact, what happened with the Rondos is the best example of the process of adaptation they all went through. The players started out saying there was a bit of a laugh, a good way to start and end warm-ups when the ball could end 10 metres outside the perimeter of the Rondo circle without ever touching the ground. But from day one, Pep insisted they pay attention to how they position themselves, how they receive the ball, whether they control it with the left or the right. For him, this exercise is crucial to any player's development. It allows them to position themselves correctly in relation to the others around them, maintain possession, receive the ball efficiently, and increase his speed on the ball. I think Ken just took off, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> this book I'd also say, seeing as that was Bayern Munich, it's not a great defence of English football. But well, they also thought... <laughs> the, point, the point there was... They thought it was a joke as well. I mean, we, we, we play piggy in the middle, it's a joke. It's about humiliating... But you know what? You know. There, there's, there, is a, there is an enormous kind of... Oh, Christ, there's an enormous caveat there, um, which is that, that it is a joke and it is part of the warm-up and it is fun and it is part of the... There's a great Spanish word, which I don't think there's an English equivalent of it, which is lúdico. It's, it's something that, that is designed to be fun. Um, and, and the Spanish will warm up with a rondo and it will feel like it doesn't matter, but it's dealt with, I think Graham's right, it's dealt with in a different way. It's felt as if it's something more serious. And there will be the warm-up that is the rondo. And then we'll, there will be the training session, which is also the rondo. And then it builds into everything else. The way that they play the games is done where there's more of a stress put on the technical ability. There's more of a stress put on, on the ability to pass. And I think one of the things that really nails down the difference uh, or kind of highlights the difference in, in quality at times, you go and watch the Spanish national team play. And um, you watch a rondo and you think, bloody hell, Xabi Alonso is rubbish. And really, genuinely, the ball is pinging around and it comes to him and he wants a touch and he wants to control it and he wants to pass it. And everyone goes, ping, 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 comes to Alonso. And it just doesn't happen as quick. It comes to Torres and he's falling over. And it's just not... It, it's, <laughs> but, but, but genuinely, these are really, really good footballers. And in that context, you get guys who in England have stood out as, as technically very, very good indeed. And then it's, it's just not quite the same thing. Now, look... Of course, it would be an exaggeration to suggest that the, the, the use of Rondos is the, the be-all and end-all. It's everything. But it is, uh, I think, a, a, a way that it's... The, the way that the ball is treated and the importance put on the way that the ball is treated is, is, is I think, a conceptual difference. I don't think it's necessarily a, a technical difference, although it becomes one. But it's a conceptual difference from the very start. Let me, pick, let me take what you were trying to say and, and let's take it back. So, for example, again, this is acquired knowledge. But when Michael Carrick tells me, I believe him. So his arrival at Manchester United was him deciding that he had to play with the big boys. And there were two boxes. They used a box, a rectangle, where the ball was pinged about at high speed to see if you could control it, anticipate it, pass it back, keep the chaser in the middle. It wasn't a circle, but the concept was identical. For those who hadn't been trained and brought up through the Manchester United ranks, for those who'd been bought there was one box, the easy box. He was put there because he was signing from Spurs. 
And he wanted to be in the box where it was hard and nasty and testing. And he had, to, and he, so he'd get in there and the ball would be bashed at him. Not, as I was saying earlier, in the things that I've seen at other Premier League clubs in England. Premier League clubs where it's just a joke. It's pathetic. It's a waste of time. And it, it talks about a mentality at the coaching level <clears throat> and a mentality at the player level, which, if you expand from it, tells you why some top English teams, and certainly the English national side, can't pass significantly well enough to either cope with trouble or kill a game or to make another team tired. There's a couple of questions there. Let me finish this. When, question, when Garrett goes up to the big box... That proved to him and proved to other players that he was te- that immediately, irrespective of his character, he was trusted, he was given the ball, he was automatically part of the gang, irrespective of what his accent was, whether he was you know, confident, bullish, a shouter on the pitch or not, he was good enough. Yeah. So, uh, and, and Manchester United won a few things in that era. No, 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 they did. And, and, and that, that, but as I say, that poses two or three questions. And one of them, of course, comes back to Cristiano Ronaldo. And, and certainly Gary Neville talks about the significance of Ronaldo saying, no, I want to be in the Champions League box as well. Because I think they, believe them, they called them Champions League and was it Premier League? Um, and Cristiano Ronaldo wants to be in the Champions League box. And like, who are you? You're a cocky kid. But he goes in and he, and he performs. But, but that says, why is it, maybe not only United, but why United different? Why do they see this differently? Why do they treat this differently because the exercise many clubs do but they don't do it in the same way and then the other thing is if you've got two boxes one which is fundamentally this is the box of the good people and this is the box of the donkeys at what point do you come out of the donkeys box and join the good box and can you ever because of course you can't have everyone bar one you can't just say well look Nicky Butt you've got to stay there mate um <laughs> so so there is a, there is a mechanism there and 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 and, and, a, and a competitive element to it I do remember watching and um, being sitting in the stadium in Gdansk before Ireland played Spain in the Euros and seeing the Spanish players do this, uh, you know, Xavi, Iniesta, Silva, ping, 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 ping. And looking, uh, my eyes just kind of went to the right. And I swear to God that at that exact moment, Shane Long volleyed the ball into his own face. <laughs> and I know it sounds, I know it sounds like I made that up. But you're treating, you're treating that as a bad thing. That's an extremely difficult skill to do. I've never seen it done. I've very, very seldom seen it. I might have done it myself a couple of times. I mean, that, that's, that's a situation in which a player can provide the assist and score the goal at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the, thing, the thing that makes me... That I wonder about this, though, is if this is like the basic building block of the superior Spanish style which wins all the European trophies, why doesn't everybody just do it? Why are they more patient with it? Why are they more diligent in their application of it? Well, one, of, one of the things that I think helps answer that, and that was your original question, why do they keep winning trophies? I think that every big answer like that is a jigsaw, and you have to talk about the fact that culturally they, they learn football differently. I think Sid and I both believe, and we'll come to one of the arch exponents of this, Spanish clubs that necessarily need to augment their own talent sign better, consistently sign with more philosophy, vision and consistency and at better prices than Premier League clubs do. And that helps them win these trophies that you're talking about. But what the, the two things I'd like to highlight is that um, from when I first became a reporter in England and covered, I was correspondent for the English national team, I began hearing Glenn Hoddle, who was the coach then, saying, well, we've lost tonight because we, we couldn't pass the ball. Well, first of all, for fuck's sake, you know... <laughs> If you're earning then 15, 20, 30,000 a week and you can't pass the ball, 
then what are you doing there? The second thing to say about that was that it was a team full of very, what, was, what were considered very, very good footballers. But the phrase rebounds around English football, both some clubs and the English national team all the time. Yet, as you say, they, they don't change it. And one of the things is the culture, because as soon as Spain began to do it, or Barcelona began to do it, the predominant reaction, or at least a reaction that I heard predominantly was, this is boring. Now, everybody's entitled to their opinion. Ish, and one of the things that I didn't like about that was like they saw the antidote, they saw the exact answer to your question. Look at these footballers who are not only um, talented and well trained, but they can consistently pass the ball to each other for a minute or two minutes or three minutes under high pressure, either offensively or defensively, to tire a team out, to take the steam out of a game, to to score. And yet there was this vast tranche of people in these islands saying that's a brand of football because it's not slapstick and keystone cops, which I find boring. And the cent- that's a central part of the answer to your question. Let's go back uh, to, to the start of the question. I mean, one of the things that I, mean, I remember saying this uh, years ago now in, in, in a piece about Barcelona that people say, well, but yeah, but how many of those passes matter? There's 650 passes. How many of the ma- those matter? I know it's a, a, a facile response, but the, ar- the answer actually is all of them. All of them, because all of them condition the way the game is played. Now, that's not to say they're all perfect. It's not to say they've all got in themselves some value. But there is that element of that. And there's a great thing I was told once by by um, a guy at Almeria who said to me, what happens is you, you, you run after them and you don't quite get there and they move the ball on. You chase after the next guy and you don't quite get there and you move the, they move the ball on. You go, right, I'm going to get to the next guy. And he, he passes the ball and he sprint like mad and you dive in and he moves the ball on just before you get there. And you look up at the scoreboard and you think, fuck me, there's 89 minutes left. And that's basically, that has that, that element that, that you're tying teams out and, and all of those things come together. There's another thing I think beyond kind of some of the, if you like, the logistical, the, the, the mechanism, is, and there is a cultural element. And I... I I think this more from from when I lived in Spain back in way back in 1996 than, than this time around because I think this is this is actually changing in Spain. But I think one of the significant differences: Spaniards play football sala, and I think football sala creates a different mentality towards football. You get much more of a touch on the ball. The ball doesn't bounce; it's heavy. It moves around the pitch. It stays on the floor. Everyone gets a touch. There's a much more. I don't even think it's a conscious decision that we're going to play more technically. There's just a different way of When you're young, Sid, and you're a little man, you can't kick the ball away. You can't kick the ball away. Well, I I don't know about you, but when when you're you're a kid, the best player on your your team is the guy who can toe-punt it 30 yards, not necessarily the guy who can can pass. And and if you're playing football salad, and as I say, the ball is smaller, it's heavier, it doesn't go in the air, you're learning... Without realising you're learning, you're learning a different set of skills, you're learning a different approach. Admittedly, there's, there's all sorts of other reasons. I mean, genuinely, this sounds ridiculous, but genuinely, climate plays a part. The way that the you game seems... like Klopp and Guardiola now, I'm talking about the wind. The wind is a problem, though. If you've got a gale at 40 miles an hour, you can't really play proper football. No, just ask Celta de Vigo and Real Madrid last weekend. But also, it's worth noting basketball. The, the, the appreciation for basketball yeah. in Spain is vastly different to anywhere in Ireland or, or the British Isles. And basketball moves the ball around until teams are ragged, waiting for a moment, waiting for a break. The concept of the pivote 
And that fundamentally... With one very, very big caveat, by the way, and, and apologies for butting in, but this is something that Juan Malillo said to me once, and Juan Malillo says a lot of things, and then they're always interesting, even if you don't always agree with me. He said, this is like basketball. And as you say, you, in basketball, the, the assumption is if you play the safe pass, you're not going to make a mistake in basketball because you're holding the ball and throwing the ball. You're not gonna make, and in, in theory, football should be the same. If you're playing the safe pass... You shouldn't lose it. You wait until the opening comes to play the more risky pass, but you play it at the right time. But Juan Malillo said there is one very, very big difference. Basketball has a shot clock. Football doesn't. So after 30 seconds, you're not obliged to go for the shot. You can keep that ball for the whole game without going anywhere. And of course, one of the things about, uh, about tiki-taka, which, by the way, was first invented as a phrase, as, as something negative to take the piss out of this kind of football. By is, a basketball commentator. Yeah, and, and then it was adopted by, by Javier Clemente, who is, if you like, kind of the archdeacon of, of as he describes it, patapum parriba, which is basically avid in Spanish. Um, and, and the... The argument there was that you, you, you move the ball around and you wait for your opportunity, but you're not forced to stop the clock. And as I say, tiki-taka in that sense could also be a defensive approach. It, didn't, it, it was sometimes seen as it's the most offensive way of playing. Well, yes, it is because you're always trying to score, but if the opportunity isn't there, you bring it back and you control with possession. You, you dominate the game with possession, not necessarily with, with chances. I am struck by the fact that you talk about the footballs as a ball being, being smaller and heavier. Gaelic footballs are also smaller and heavier, but didn't really seem to have translated into uh, uh, helping our technique. But, the, but what you're saying about all the passes matter, you know, 650 passes, so many matter. One of the... One of the um, really striking things I remember reading Pep Guardiola saying was uh, we need a minimum of 15 passes to establish a good position in the centre of the field. It's, it was in one of these Paranau uh, Byron books. 15 passes minimum just to set up well in order that we can then mm. have a proper attack. And the extre- the, it, it's such an extreme way to look at the game. You know what I mean? It's very ideological, which is why I wanted to, I wanted to move into talking a bit about Barcelona because... This kind of uh, we, we saw we saw them play Guardiola football for years. I mean, 2011 maybe the was maybe their best year. People have different opinions on on what the best season was. But there were times they played. They went through whole months without teams being able to get the ball off them. It was crazy. It was it was insane to watch. They're moving away from that now. That's that's history now. I think it's broken now, and I think that that's a natural um, truth um, because the. The fact that the, the seed was planted by Cruyff and that it was drawn from something that we saw in the great Ajax years and then adapted to the slightly different needs of Spanish football, grown by Cruyff, taken by Guardiola and made something, maybe version you know, 0.2, 0.3, if you want to think of it like that. It was fanatically intense. And I would argue that um, from the little I know of NFL... And having spoken to players there, you report in a Super Bowl, the playbooks. I'd say Pep Guardiola's playbooks in football, and, and that might account for some of the some of the difficulties that City are facing at the moment, because I don't think the players are are actually intelligent enough to take it all on at high speed. And I also think he's struggling in a different language to get across highly difficult concepts. Maybe people would like football to be simpler than that, but since you've talked about what you watched and who the author was. The truth of it is that that was a real hybrid scientific laboratory style of I've got all the right players, um, I'm going to give them vastly difficult things to do, but about three quarters of them have been doing this since they're 11. And the muscle memory aspect of the brain, um, the feet, the, I've done this before, some of it was done as good as it looked, 
without a lot of thinking because it was automatic and they call it automatismos in Spain when it's really good because it's just inbred it's, it's without thought and it's dangerous and it's good when you don't have a large number of La Masia players in your first team when you've got a player who uh, a coach who wasn't brought up in that idea who is talented who's good whose who's trophies have you know been high high level if you look at Luis Enrique but who says we'll get the ball quicker to the front three We'll sign players who haven't... We'll, instead of promoting, we'll sign players who will pick on criteria which should be able to replicate the idea of Xavi and Busquets and Iniesta, but, you know, might not. Then what you begin to see is um, the frayed edges of the jumper being pulled until the thread unravels and the jumper comes apart. Mm. And I think it's a natural... It's not a criticism, it's a natural process, but the, the relationship which this high-trophy-winning Barcelona side has with 2008-9-11 isn't zero, but it's very, very low indeed. And it isn't simply because there's been a few weeks when Busquets and Iniesta have been out and Xavi's gone and Puyol's gone. The fact of it is that an entire philosophy is ebbing away. Um, it probably wasn't a philosophy that could last for an extraordinarily long time. And once Messi's gone... I think everybody who enjoys Barcelona football must be ready for them to be a relatively ordinary club again until the generation of Piquet, Puyol, Xavi, Iniesta, Busquets come back as whatever structure yeah. it is, president, director of football, coach, assistant coach, and maybe they'll succeed or maybe they won't. But we're in the dog days of that era. But it, depend, it does also depend on, on, on how they manage that because one of the ways to try and overcome the, 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 the trauma that, that the loss of Messi will bring is to say, OK, let's do what our philosophy says. Now, that will depend who the manager is. It will depend on the quality of the players coming through the system, whether they really are as good. Because, of course, as you say, it's not just about, look, we've got Iniesta, we've got Busquets, we've got Xavi. It's not just about that, but it's a big lot about that. A big chunk of it is that you've got three players who are possibly once-in-a-generation players, certainly when they come together, maybe once-in-a-generation players. Um, I, I think there is a risk as well of, of, of slightly, slightly exaggerating it at times, but I think that's based on the fact that I think Spanish football and the way that it's dealt with by, by the media and by fans, certainly in Catalonia, I think in Catalonia more than, more than in Madrid, in, in kind of almost ideological terms, means that I think that when Barcelona don't totally dominate the game, it's seen as a, a, a losing of, of their religion. It's not just seen as they haven't played that well. And I'll give you a good example of this, is that um, when Barcelona, Barcelona went to Rayo Vallecano and the first time in five years they didn't have possession, they didn't have more than 50% of the possession for the first time in five years, well, they won 4-0 that day. And there was that kind of debate, as, whoa, okay, so is this twist actually a good thing? And, of course, when Barcelona win the treble in the first year with Luis Enrique, well, maybe this twist is a good thing. Or maybe it's just you've got three absolute monsters at the top of the pitch who, who are so good that no matter what you do, you're still going to win. And, and then, then you ask that question, so when Messi's not there, is the answer, get another Messi, which you're not going to get? Or, although Neymar will, of course, be a, a brilliant player and I'm sure they'll have money to buy other really great players. Or is it that, OK, let's go back to what it was that, that made us what we were, but the doubt is whether that's really possible. Well, well you, you reported um, Luis Enrique last season saying, I just say abracadabra and the magic happens. 
Which, which is, I mean, look, let's put this in context, right? And the context is that Luis Enrique is an enormously sarcastic bastard. Um. <laughs> so it's, a to- it's actually totally sarcastic. He's like, you're idiots, you don't appreciate the what? value I, I'm bringing. All, almost certainly there is a big proportion of what he's saying, which is, you all think I'm nothing. Why you is all he think so bad-tempered? You know what? Funny enough, I don't think he is bad-tempered as Anytime such. I see him, anytime I see no, no, him, he's, he's, he's got a I don't think he's bad I think he's prickly in a kind of I'm going to wind you up sort of way rather than an I'm a genuinely angry sort of way. But there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's an underpinning. My favourite Luis Enrique moment was that there was this um, headline in the build-up to the Classico, I think in his first season, when um, the newspaper ass had done a front-page headline and it said, Luis Enrique tries, tries, to, tries to swim through chewing gum. Right, now... This phrase doesn't make any more sense in Spanish than it does in English. Don't think for a minute that this, oh, this is a set phrase in Spanish. This, this makes sense. Luis Enrique is trying to swim through chewing gum. So Luis Enrique puts out a picture on Twitter saying, just preparing for the derby. And it's a picture of his office, and they're all there with their laptops and their statistics. And Luis Enrique, and just in the foreground, there's just a little packet of chewing gum just on the desk. And that was him sort of saying, I know what your game is, and I'm going to play, and I'm going I'm to wind you up. But basically, he doesn't like us. I mean, that's the bottom line. I, I'd, I'd like to sort of back a little bit what Sid um, said. He was like this as a footballer. You know, he, he, oh, yeah. God, he was. He was worse as a player he's, than he is he's, as a manager. He's definitely spiky. He's definitely prickly. He's aggressive. Um, all things that make me like him more. But with journalists who ask questions about football, yeah, predominantly he he's fair and interesting. Um, I had luck through working for UEFA, not because of any personal condition, to sit down and interview him before the Champions League final they won the, during the treble year. And it was supposed to be 15 minutes, it went half an hour. And talking about football, he was fun and interesting and articulate. He's, he's, got, he's got, there's a psychologist. So we, we went to his presentation on the first day that he's appointed. And, you know, he let loose exactly what he feels. He's a, he's a historian and supporter he on his team. But he's a coolie. He's a Barcelona fan. He's a little bit head over heels about the club. And he said, it's, it's like, you know, what's it like getting the job? It's like being in Disneyland. And somebody asked him about, oh, how did it feel this morning? We were about to come in and sign for the club. He said, the sun was shining a little bit brighter above my house. So he is a football romantic. But in, in that presentation, he introduced the six or seven people in his team. Six or seven core people. There's more still. And one of them was a sports psychologist. So we all thought, well, that's quite interesting to try and keep the edge in this team that's been used to Pep Guardiola, who had their guru in Guardiola. Well, no, sports psychologist is there for Luis Enrique. He's glued to Luis Enrique. Every time he does an interview, every time he does a press conference, when Sid and I stand in the, in the not in the mix zone, but the flash zone, where TVs pay millions of pounds to be allowed to be there. When you stand there, they won't let me in. You'll see, um, <laughs> that's not my fault, by the yeah. way. That's nothing to do with me. You, you, he'll be you know, one-on-one in this situation that you all see on the TV. So your screen says, there's a backdrop, there's Luis Enrique, you can't see the reporter. What's happening around it is there'll be six or seven of these stalls. And because the quality of the mics and the mufflers on them, you can't hear what's going on around them. And there might be four or five interviews going on in a space as tight as this stage. And literally just out of shot on Luis Enrique's shoulder is the sports psychologist whose job is to consume everything that Luis Enrique is saying. Oh, you absolute beauty. <laughs> to consume everything that he's saying, to, to make a note of it, and then to fine-tune him 
the next time he's going to go out and to keep him on a short leash because we're, we're not saying the real, the real Sunrique would be over the table at some of us, at some, not us, but he would be over the table because Speak unfortunately <laughs> coaches and footballers have to put up with a load of utter nonsense from people who should know better in our game. And if it were me, then you know I'd lose my job for telling them you can, you're banned, you can fuck off, or do you want to go outside? And, and that's... <laughs> And that's the fault of the media, not Luis Enrique. I, I defend him. I don't think he's a bad bugger at all. Well, you mentioned the media. I mean, uh, you know, we, well, I want to ask you a couple more things about Barcelona. But the Spanish football media amazes me. The, some of the stuff that, that I, I remember, for instance, sitting at the Champions League final uh, last, uh, last year, Atletico Madrid have just lost on penalties to Real Madrid. Uh, Diego Simeone, the defeated manager, defeated for the second time in three years, is sitting there. And in the front row, uh, sitting right in front of him, is a journalist in a Real Madrid shirt. Why does he have to? Why does he have to look at that? Why is there a journalist wearing a, wearing a, a team I rest my shirt? Case. Do, do you want the honest answer? I beg your pardon. Do you want the honest answer? Because he's a twat. <laughs> because, but this, I mean, but things, a, it wasn't just him. There was there was loads this, of him. He's there in his Raul Ken, shirt. this is this is metaphoric. Metaphorical is that the right word? Um, am I talking nonsense? This this is metaphorical as well as, well as actual. Journalists in Spain wear football shirts. Not that they actually wear football shirts, but they report with football shirts on. And that's, that's one of the things that most hits you when you get there. Now, after a while, you, you kind of get used to it. I'll give you an example. On, on Wednesday night, um, on Wednesday night, Alaves reached the Copa del Rey final. Their first final in 96 years. Um, in fact, their only final in 96 years, apart from, of course, the, the UEFA Cup final with Liverpool. So their first ever domestic final. They've never won anything. Alaves. This is a truly historic moment in Spanish football. The two national Spanish newspapers on the front covers go with a former Napoli player says he'll go to the Bernabeu to watch Napoli play against Real Madrid. And, oh look, Real Madrid are interested in David De Gea again. And that is the way that the media is... is the, the mechanisms behind it is that it's driven by what in Spanish is always described as journalism of the scarf. Now for me, in a funny sort of way, the, the fact that people have teams isn't a problem, that journalist support teams isn't a problem. Graham supports Aberdeen, that's no problem. Well, it's, it's a bit of a problem, but it's not, it's not a particularly big one. Two fucking European trophies, the only team in Scotland that had that. Okay. You know what? Stick it you know up what? your ass. And, and, and one of the things that... Um, that's just provocative. One, one of the things that, 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 that Real Madrid fans don't like you reminding them is, of course, one of them's against Real Madrid in 1983. Um, oh, yes. But <laughs> the, the, the problem isn't really that, that they have a team. It's the problem is that the journalism is done through having a team. And, and, and it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. See, I don't necessarily mind that football fan wearing a Real Madrid shirt if he then puts up his hand and asks a reasonable question. Can I, can I, the problem is that he's going to pop at his hand and say, so chip just how this, gutted are you on a scale of one to ten? Like, I'm, old, no, I'm a lot older than you, and I've been going to Spain for a longer time. And I, and I admit that I might have... I'm, I might be wrong about this, but my entire decision to move to Spain, um, you know, there was no... Precognizance, the same as your move was not based on knowing that the Galacticos were coming at Real Madrid or Xavi or Iniesta. Now, I had no idea at all that there was about to be a golden era at Barcelona. I chose the city because of it was near the sea and I like to be near water. And Steve Archibald played there. Don't, don't blame Steve, it's really not his fault. Ex Aberdeen player, no, it's as simple as that. The whole of Catalonia is phoning Steve Archibald up at the, the moment and goes, Steve, <laughs> fuck did you do to us? <laughs> That's the first true thing you said tonight. <laughs> <laughs> There's more to come. But 
one of the things that absolutely and completely inspired me as a journalist to move to Spain was that the two key things were, in those days you were allowed to go and watch training and you could make yourself a better interpreter and writer and communicator about football, which is our task. It's not to impart opinions, it's to see things, report them accurately, build up a knowledge base and try to bring to people who want to know about things that they're not allowed to see. Can and I make a very, very, sec- qu- very quick insertion here? It's, it's related to this, is that in those days, the Spanish written football media was intensely better than it is now. Yeah. It wasn't unbiased, there was a bit of the scarf, but they wrote about football. And in our time in Spain, the Spanish written press has, has deteriorated out of all possible imagination. Yeah. Now, the one, one of the things that, that, that I think is, is, is absolutely true, that the, the, the access was different, the, the focus on it was, was, was different, you, you saw things. And, and very quickly, the point I wanted to make about you saying it's not our job to have opinions and so on, what I've often said, and it, and it drives me mad a little bit, is that when you have an opinion or when you make an argument, it seems to me you an argument, and maybe this comes from, because my background is not journalism, my background is, is, is history, but the argument should be through demonstration, not through assertion. And endlessly you see arguments that are through assertion. Right? This is what I think, therefore this is what I think, therefore this is what I think, therefore this is what I think, the end I'm right. No, fuck off, no. This is what I think, and I'll tell you why, because of this, because of this, because this proves it, this suggests it, and this is what I believe. And you might see, if you go back through the piece, that I, I've just demonstrated to you. Now, I can still be wrong, but this is a demonstration of an argument. But there is this desire to... And I, I think it happens everywhere, and certain ex-professionals are particularly bad for it um, in the British media, but th- this desire that this is my opinion, and I'm just going to repeat it five times so it is, so it is true. No, show it. Don't, don't assert it. Show it. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, I just have one very, one very quick audience question here from uh, Art McGuire, who wants to know who's on Sid's T-shirt? Um, who or what, indeed? Isidro Langara, who was um, top scorer in Spain in the 1930s, played for... This is where this is where we're moaning about journalists with football teams. Play, Art, play, Art play, how play, did you not play, know that? Play for Oviedo. Come on, yeah. son. Yeah, we'll, we'll get back to a few more of those. But um, just, to, just to return to this this whole uh, Barcelona thing. I was at, I was at the, the 2015 Champions League final when Barcelona won. They beat, they beat Juventus and it was like, they just overwhelmed Juventus with the quality of I mean, Luis Suarez, Neymar scored the goals at the end. Well, Rakitic, I think, the first one. But you know, watching this team, it was in a way more exciting than the, than the Guardiola team. The game was more unpredictable. Juventus could easily have won. Uh, the Barcelona players are amazing. And I thought to myself... This Barcelona team is what Florentino Perez has always dreamed of. This is the Galactico Real Madrid team that Florentino Perez always wanted, and it's finally come true at Barcelona. Is that why maybe... Does that have something to do with the way that they're kind of drifting a little bit away from, you know, what made them the great Barcelona? A kind of a star system, a two-tier squad with the with the big guys and then it's, everyone it's else. Not, it's not as extreme as it was with in particular the first Galactico era. One of the reasons why the first Galactico era failed was because it didn't just create divisions within the squad, it gloried in them. It, it expressed them in a way that was basically destined guaranteed to be, as, as Santi Solari put it, and Solari, of course, was a member of this group of players, but he, he, he's a very, very keen observer, very, very astute. He said, what we are doing tends towards the disappearance of the middle class. And that's what happened with that first Galactic. That's nice. That's, nice that's very much like Santi Solari, but, but basically with the, the Zidanis and Pavonis policy. And there's a fantastic photograph of a training ground goal and there's Zidane sitting leaning against one post and there's Pavon sitting leaning against the other post and in the middle there is nothing. And that was that was kind of the definition of that team. But, can, but, can, but that you, Barcelona team, I don't think, went quite that way. Your question um, because uh, the contention's smart, and um, if if Florentino could reproduce that, he, yes, he'd be happy as a pig and shit. But the key thing is, none of those players were signed for marketing value. Not one of them. You'd have to actually say that there was an inherent risk in signing Luis Enrique, uh, Luis Suarez. Now, okay, it's proved that that hasn't been, that he's adapted, he's matured. The fact that Iniesta is there, his wife is happy. All this. So it's worked. And if anything, he's maybe a more complete, certainly a calmer player. But there was, there was zero of the Galactico policy. But in terms of how they played, the fact that you can construct it rather than develop it, then your, your point's well made. What I think is absolutely key is that there was a bit of Pandora's box about it in that it was at the instant where Luis Enrique, who, who ran up numbers that were unparalleled in the first part of his, the first half of his treble season, but didn't make his players happy, 
hadn't communicated well, made them feel like you felt about him. They thought he was prickly, undercommunicative, bossy rather than just a boss. And that wasn't a great spirit. And the fact that there was what was a highly reported fight between him and Leo Messi in the training game before the Real Sociedad defeat, which is something that other players and other managers have suffered with Leo Messi. By a million miles, um, he'd be as competitive at base level as, for example, a genuine competitor like Roy Keane. It shows differently, but in his DNA, that's what he's like. And therefore, Leo Messi will lose his temper and fight in training if a, if a bad offside flag's given or a foul's not called or a goal's disallowed. And that's how a, a, a top-level footballer should be. But that fight and the way in which um, Xavi reacts to it, the way in which the players represent themselves to Luis Enrique, the way in which the balm is applied and the healing is unifies them, which won't always be the case when... It, when when there's a schism and, and there's bad temper and things are said. It won't always work, but it did. And they played in a way which unleashed the power of his idea that they would just diminish the elaboration of the play. Sid's point about every pass counts to some degree because you're dragging them around or you're organising yourselves or it's a pre-planned strategy. They, they said at that stage, don't worry, folks, it's just a temporary loss of service while we, we trick everybody because our teams are waiting for us to pass because we're Barcelona. And what we're going to do is, and every player in Barcelona's squad right now can speak really convincingly and articulately about the system, but I still think they're wrong. They're saying, well, previously, we didn't have so many strikers like Leo Messi up front. Therefore, what we had to do was exactly draw what Sid said, move the ball about, confuse the other team, tire them. Oh, bosh, there you are, there's the pass. We saw Larson arrive. I make a run at Celtic. I get the ball because it's Larson, and I score, and I say when the ball goes. You know, it's the, it's the head of the organisation, not the heart or the brain that dictates. Thierry Henry was identical. I've turned, I've turned the Barca book that I wrote turned into a film, and he's talked really well in the interview for the film about, at Arsenal, I did this and I got the ball. But Pep said, do that. And famously, he said on Sky that when he didn't do that, he was substituted. Pretty obviously, he didn't get on that well with Pep. I mean, no. I, I don't know if you saw me. He was I talking pretty to... obviously. Well, yeah. He no, was, no, you're I, wrong. Well, I, I find whenever, whenever Henri talks about Guardiola, it's always, he's always like, wow, this guy is really brilliant, you know, and then tells a story about how Guardiola sort of humiliated him or, or forced him to do something that was quite menial. But of course, you know, if the plan was great. He talked to Zlatan recently. I don't know if you saw that. You know, Henri talks to Zlatan. And, uh, the Pogba interview. Henri, yeah, Pogba kind of came in. But Henri is saying to Zlatan, oh, you know, he, he was trying to prod him to say more of his insulting things about, you know, Guardiola or whatever. And, well, and, and Zlatan wasn't, wasn't really going off, there. He's Pep. like, oh, what I am Zlatan. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You really are a massive cock. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, he says... It's just the way I'm sitting. <laughs> he said... He said... So the... <laughs> uh, Pep... Uh, Plus, he, some of our parents are listening. Okay, so just a respectful saluting and silence would have done there, okay? He, uh, Henri says, oh, you know, he's trying to... Zlatan says, look, one of, you know, two great coaches, one of them stimulates me more. That's... I'm going to leave it. And, and Henri's kind of like, 
go on, you know, wanting to say more. And Zlatan just looks at me and goes, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. We, you know exactly what I'm talking a, a about. A little aside here, by the way. In, in Zlatan's book, which everyone got very excited about and said was brilliant, there's a bit in, in Zlatan's book where he says, you know, I didn't like Pep, whereas I would have walked through walls for, Guardi, uh, for, for Mourinho. Go, why? At no point in the book does he say, why? Why? There's no, there's no explanation. There's no definite description of what it is that he actually does differently. That Mourinho does. And, and actually, what, one of the curious things about, about Zlatan's book is that all the way through, when he's trying to make others look bad, he sort of makes himself look bad. He goes, I didn't like those people at Barcelona. God, they were too interested in winning football matches. They were too good. They did the right things in training. I mean, how dare these bastards go to training and try and win football matches? And it's it's kind of weird. I mean, it's... It's interesting to read because it's totally different from other players' books, but it does lack that kind of fundamental content. All I want to do is conclude that I can't speak for Cherry Henry, but I know what he said to us at length for an interview that he knew would probably end up as five, six minutes in a long film because there's so many participants. And the chat was 90 minutes. And in it, his, um, his respect for not just Pep as a guru, I'm not trying to uh, bum up Pep's um, sort of holier than anybody else's status. This was a footballer explaining how he'd been made better, how the things that Pep had asked him to do that were difficult and that he didn't like initially, he understood, they bore fruit, they made him a better player, they won him the Champions League trophy that he craved. Therefore, I, I... my opinion is that you've misjudged what he thinks of him. Was I it, think you can have respect, with it, with respect yes. without affection. You know, you can have respect without well, thinking listen, that. You let's know. leave the affection for the Women's Rural Institute. <laughs> okay. But all, all I'm trying to say is that... <laughs> Should I call him out on that? Or? <laughs> all, I'm, all I'm trying to say is that we started this point about beating Juventus. And at that stage... Lucien Enrique was doing a version of what Pep Guardiola felt he had to do when he ran out of gas in 2012, which was a reboot. Trick opponents by doing something different. And I used used the phrase, don't worry, folks, normal service will be resumed in a minute or two. And the players all said, no, no, no. They use the word Matisse's, don't they? All we're doing is there's a new one here because we're getting the ball long because we've got three, said, said, beasts up front. Fine but it has proved to be Pandora's box. If you stop the elaboration, if you ignore the midfield, if you say, I tell you what our solution is, not long ball football, let's give it to the three guys. And, and Xavi will say it, Iniesta will say it, they'll say, those three up front need less help to resolve the difficulty of beating tight defending and scoring than we needed previously. All right, that's fine. But if they want to continue playing the Barca way, which they all said they did, this isn't the way. There's, there's also an element, a, a small element of exaggeration in the whole thing. So, for example, last all the way through last year, the debate in Spain was Barcelona are not what they were. They haven't got the same identity, which, of course, there were enormous elements of, of, of truth in that, as Graham's talking about. But, f- for example, they go, to, they, go, they go to Manchester and they keep the ball for pretty much the whole game. They dominate. Um, it's also true that Pep Guardiola team, particularly with Eto and, and, and Omri in it, not so much when Villa and, and Pedro are the two that support Messi up front, that team also played on the break when it needed to. That team, for example, look back on that 6-2 against Real Madrid which is the great performance, perhaps, of the, of the first season. 
there's a lot of that breaking through. There's a lot of that of Omri is the best player in that team, not Messi that day, although Messi was absolutely extraordinary. But the, I think, there is, I think there, is, there is a risk at times, I think, of us taking everything as being 100% this or 100% that and nothing in between. And as Graham said, the word is matithis, those, those nuances, those, those caveats, those, those kind of grey areas that are not, not quite as clear-cut as it appears. The problem is, of course, you're talking about Barcelona where everything is seen in ph- philosophical terms. And as, co- as soon as you break from that, you're no longer yeah. philosophical. Well, the rules say uh, that we should talk about Real Madrid now, but be mindful of what you were saying earlier. Let's not do that. Um, Let's talk instead about a club that does things in a different way from these uh, gigantic clubs. Um, maybe is the, the smartest club in, in Europe, and certainly has one of the smartest employees. I'm talking about Sevilla and their sporting director, Munchi. Munchi, who is a goalkeeper and shouldn't therefore you know, understand He wasn't even a very good goalkeeper. As Munchi always puts it, he was the second-choice goalkeeper in a very poor team. Yeah. He was, he was, I mean, he really was... He really was pretty much nothing. He was, for what it's worth, Diego Maradona's best friend in that side. He tells a great story about Maradona, Maradona turning up one day and going, that's a really nice watch, Monchi. And he says, yeah, what, Rolex. Oh, he goes, it's fake. And Maradona comes in the next day and gives him a real one. He says, how the hell can a mate of mine be wearing a fake Rolex? Says, yeah. Jesus. Was that a tax dodge or... <laughs> <laughs> What was going on there? Now, th- this guy, though, is, is, is incredible. I mean, he... Uh, every year, Sevilla gets the Europa League final, win, sell the team, buy a new team, and then they repeat the process. It's incredible how they're able to do this. Now, I mean, uh, and, and on a much smaller budget than, you know, almost any Premier League club. This, so this is a... I, I wonder what it is. I mean, Premier League clubs seem to almost have so much money that it's, it, like, dulls their brain a little bit. And Sevilla are in a position where they, they don't have that narcotic, uh, you know, floods of cash. And I've managed to... What is it that sets this guy apart from even He's the equivalent of Rondo, I think, genuinely, without being flippant. You know, you, 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 you decide what you want to do. You plan for it. You practice it. You do it right every time, all the time. You involve no, a that. system of people in that. You make sure that everybody's got the same concept, the same rules... And even though then that means that, you know, if you take the Rondo and the Pep Guardiola style of football, that predominantly people should be able to say, well, that's wrong. You're going to play lots and lots of small guys, some guys who are slow. You're going to break every single rule. You're going to win. You're going to be better than them. Well, why? Because you understand what it is you're backing. Talent, number one. Talent and intelligence and bravery. And the fact that everybody says you're pissing in the wind shouldn't dissuade you. Now, Monchi is a little bit similar in that you've just identified several ways in which you should not be able to sustain success. The things that Sevilla do over and over again should absolutely be dead weights around your legs as you sink below the tide. Well, it gets everyone. Like, you, you know, you win something, your team breaks up, and that's it, you're done. They've done something, they've done something that I think that, that, that no one else has done as well, which is, which is quite interesting. They've normalised departures, right? And what I mean by that is that I think they've, they've, they've normalised departures in footballing terms, but they've also normalised departures in emotional terms. And at the start of the season, when, when Spain were about to play, uh, play against England, an interview with Bitolo, and right at the start of the interview, he says something about Alberto Moreno. I said, oh, OK. Well, and what does Alberto Moreno say about the Premier League? He said, well, he says that it will really suit me. Well, what? I haven't even had to push you. 
I'm certainly not having to twist your words for you to say, I want to go to England. And you think, this is, this is, this is mad. Why? I mean, you, you don't say this because you wind up fans, you wind up your club. And actually what he's doing in the case of Sevilla, which doesn't happen at every other club, is he's doing what the club wants him to do. Build him up, sell him on, because we'll get someone else. They've normalised what should be a normal process, because a club like Sevilla needs this. But they've normalised it. Why? Because they keep coming through it. And they, that has, I think, enabled them to... Um, I mean, obviously it's difficult to see, say what comes first, but it's enabled them to sell players and for it not to have an impact in footballing terms, but also not to have an impact in emotional terms. They don't start a season think, oh my God, we've lost all our best players. They don't feel like that because they, they, they trust in the ability. And of course that becomes self-perpetuating. You have a, a sporting director who can bring in 10 new players and of those 10, eight will succeed. You also, The other thing that Monchi always says in terms of trying to take the... The, the credit away from himself is says you're bringing them to an environment that works. You're bringing them to an environment where they feel so happy. Then, so then, listen, I agree totally, but start, the, the, it's worth for anybody who's hearing that for the first time or understanding for the first time, if you start with the fact that, you know, Monchi is given a clean slate. When he's new at the job, when they're in the second division, so the, the, the building of a matrix, the building of momentum, the building of that feeling, the building of an idea and a philosophy starts not from a a clean piece of paper, but does start from when they are their relic. Does start similarly to Villarreal when Roy takes over at Villarreal well. That's a and they're training in a public park with less money. and they say we will we will invest in you, this person, this brain, and we will sign this way. We will be consistent. We will stick with you. You're not like, for example. So he's been there 16 years, Monchi, and the reason that you see stories about him potentially leaving isn't because of a giant offer from Everton or Paris Saint-Germain or Roma. It's because, and he, he told me this in, at Christmas, just in neon for the... Uh, it burns you out. I'm tired. I have to change my scope because I need to refresh myself. It's costing too much. But that's after 16 years. That's a phrase that's important. When you... Who invests 16 years in anything now in football? whether you're talking about League of Ireland, when you're talking Premier League, wherever else it is, 16 years of saying, we trust him. So therefore, the message that you're, you're putting out there about departures normalised, environments, these things are built by him, but he also signs to a system. And no system is perfect. And, I, and I'll, I'll close by saying, Zubi Zareta, who said there's more affection for than me or respect for than me, and I'm not denigrating him at all, but it's, it's really clear. What do they say in the adverts where if you're driving X fast, your braking time is X, and if you limit your speed, you will kill, won't kill, whatever. There is that same braking speed thing in the work of a football director. In the job of a coach, you should be able, a really good coach with decent players, you can see a difference after two, three, four, five sessions in specific areas. In the job of a director of football, if you get things right, the CG plant can take a long time to bloom. If you're getting things wrong, but you've been well prepared before, your players are good, or your coach is exceptional, your failures can take a little bit of time to see. So Zubi Zureta, doing Monchi's job at Barcelona, renews the squad, signs the squad, who perform immediately and win that last treble. And he's sacked mid-season. Now, all right, there are always politics, there are always other reasons. But the fact that Monchi has never had to suffer that over the 16 years, 
the fact that even when he began to sign, you know, what was the Russian player he signed from, um, or Ukrainian player? No, no, no. Put up, cannot the anchor. They the, fucked the, off ringer, out of the club. The, winger, the left winger, whose name I've now forgotten. Uh, he, he played against them in the Palop yeah, game. Yeah, the next, the, the left winger. Yeah. Who, um. <laughs> there was a there was a time when there were six or seven players signed at bigger money, and they, right. they didn't for, work. For, for me, and that, the for, faith was the same. That's exactly that's exactly the key for me. The 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 moment, the one kind of prolonged period in which it feel felt like. Things were going wrong at Sevilla was when they started spending reasonably good money, which they hadn't done before. And and for me, actually, more than him, the, the, the signing that really stands out is Cornet, the striker, and who's not a bad player at all. And went to Levante and suddenly started scoring a whole load of goals and ended up at Wigan, I think. Is that right? Um, anyway, he 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 failed. I think one of the things that that Monchi has done as well is that Graham was talking about sixteen years is a long time. Sixteen years of the intensity of what Monchi does, because one of the things that Monchi did was to try and deal with absolutely everything. I saw him just before the Europa League final last year, and that morning he was working out who was picking up the players' luggage, where it was going to, what time that luggage was ending up at the hotel. These are things that he shouldn't be doing, and he was burnt out. He really was burnt out. Um, but the way they've done things is they, they've they've trusted in him, they've believed in him. As I said earlier. They've normalised departures, but I actually think his departure is the one they're really frightened of because they're really frightened that this might not work without him. But he always says that the environment matters, that you bring people to Sevilla. It's a a city where people feel happy. It's a city city where they get embraced. It's a city where their best football comes out. And it's a great example. And, and, And I didn't put these two things together. And then later on I did, and I thought, okay, maybe this is part of it. Ivan Rakitic turns up at Sevilla to sign for them. And he's there in the hotel, the Hotel Lebedos, which is literally 50 metres away from the stadium. And, and he goes down to the hotel bar and he's with his brother and his brother is saying, look, I've had some calls from some other clubs. There's some big deals here. You're going to see the Sevilla president tomorrow, but there's better deals here. And he goes into the hotel bar and he thinks, bloody hell. And he says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm marrying her. And I wouldn't put it past Monchi to have put her in the hotel bar. <laughs> anyway, he marries her. He stays in Sevilla. He becomes a club captain. It, it all works out. Now, obviously, there's an element of kidology in this story. But, but this is the way that Rakitic tells it. He says to his brother, I'm marrying that girl. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here. And there is a little bit of me that imagines Monchi's there with his little guidebook. He's going, player, great player, great player, great player. Right, okay, she's going in that bar. And, and, but, but, and you know, I, I, obviously that's flippant. But I do think there is an element of creating an environment in which people feel happy. He says, he often says, we hear his phrasing, if a player of mine has failed, whether it's now Anka that you rightly pointed out, wasn't mentally fit for the, for the job, mm-hmm. or that little period of about... 18, 20 months where too many players were signed for, but he said, it's not that our system has failed. He said, we've failed to support them as people to adapt to what we yeah. need. Now, in football, that, you well, that never human, hear that That human phrase. element gets, gets, gets forgotten all the time. And, I know, we, I mean, we both know our Premier League footballer who was signed to a Premier League club and was, you know, when he asked, I've, got, I've been selected by my national team and I don't know how to get from here to the airport. 
And the club were like, yeah, we'll, we'll give you a driver. And they sent him a driver, the president's driver of the club, the chairman's driver. And he was charged, you know, 214 quid by his own club to drive yeah. him to the airport. Yeah. To go and, you know, that's the anti-Monchi, but the, that the, happens. Monchi's idea is rare. And the, 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 human element, the human element, of course, is really important. As you say, and, and Monchi would always would, would say, we have, to, we have to look after them as people. And, yeah. you know... Last the, a couple of weeks ago, I went to to see Kevin Prince Boateng in in, in Las Palmas, and, he, and it was really striking that one of the things that Damien Camoli, the Spurs sporting director, said that the one big regret I had in terms of signing a player was signing was signing Prince, and it wasn't because he didn't have talent; it was because I failed to see Kevin Prince Boateng. Yeah, okay. I failed to see that he was a young. A, a, sorry, not that Prince. No. There's been a few Spurs players who probably could have been helpfully replaced by him, though. Um, that he said, I, I, I regretted signing him, not because he wasn't talented, because he was, but because we didn't appreciate this was a young player not ready for London. And it was our fault. Obviously, it's his fault fundamentally, because he's the player that's, that, that's misbehaving, that's not, not focusing on the football. But Camoli recognised that we needed to keep him away from that. We needed to, to, to make sure that his attitude was right. Well, we also need to uh, help uh, to create the best possible atmosphere for the audience, which maybe involves everybody being able to get a fresh drink now. Uh, so we're going to take about a 10-minute break, and uh, we'll be back after that for part two. The Big Interview is produced by Backpage and me, Graham Hunter. The music you always hear, the music that you love, is Beer Jacket. You can enter exclusive competitions and put your questions to our future big interview guests by getting on the mailing list at grahamhunter.tv. Yes, several thousand of you have done it, but come on, slackers at the back, sign up. Thanks for being there. Without you, this would be fun, but a lot less fun. See you soon. (laughs) 